What's going on, Cryptoland? My name is Phil. This is the Fun with Crypto podcast. We're in season two, and this is episode 17. In today's episode, I do an interview with Dan Held. We talk planting Bitcoin. Um, we also discuss Bitcoin security models. We also discuss the, uh, you know, addressing the issue with, uh, you know, Bitcoins boiling the ocean and all the electricity problems. And we get into some, you know, some Bitcoin philosophy. And it's it's really, a, I had a really amazing time talking with Dan. I totally appreciate that he came on my show. And without further ado, here is my interview with Dan Held. All right, everybody in crypto land, I've got with me uh, somebody that is, in terms of the Bitcoin space uh, has been very, very uh, instrumental in my uh, tumbling down the rabbit hole specifically towards Bitcoin. He wrote uh, many articles, but one, or I should say four of them that really, really impacted me was planting Bitcoin because the explanations were so well done and he also put together a soundtrack that goes with each part if you want to listen to it which also helps add to the to the storytelling aspect so i am going to introduce none other than dan held dan dan thank you for joining me thanks for having me so um obviously i'm, I'm a huge fan of of planting bitcoin and uh but before we talk about that i i just um I understand that you're the co-founder of Interchange HQ. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, we just simply call it Interchange. Oh, okay. Interchange. Sorry. Um, if you don't mind me asking, uh, what is, or I guess like, what uh, what is it that you guys do? Yeah, great question. So what we're doing over at Interchange is we are the back to middle office accounting solution for big uh, companies in the crypto space. So if you're a fund admin, an OTC desk, an exchange, or a fund manager, we can help power some of that, some of the uh, accounting, reconciliation, and reporting functions that you need to do. You know, if you're wrangling data across multiple exchanges, multiple blockchains, and trying to figure out what happens, you know, we do all of that for you. Uh, so, you know, in the, in, in the traditional world, we don't have so many uh, different data types and formats and, and different venues to pull data from. And so we we largely are the translation layer between the crypto world to the traditional uh, world. Okay, that that sounds really interesting. So, I, it almost sounds it, it, and I might be totally misunderstanding it, but is is that in a way like a sort of oracle? In you know, like there, there's that term that floats around, and I hate to I hate to use it in context with Bitcoin, but it, it almost seems like you're you know what I mean. You're you're providing that that bridge between you know, the, uh, we'll say the blockchain and the financial space. Yeah, I wouldn't really phrase it that way. I'd say the data flows the other direction. You know, we're, we're pulling data from the blockchain to monitor our clients' portfolios. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So we're, we're simply just a like portfolio. It's, you know, another way to phrase it would be like a portfolio tracking service where we're tracking your data across multiple blockchains, exchanges, et cetera. Okay. Okay. I understand. Um, okay. So, I mean, besides interchange, how did you, um, how did you get into, uh, into Bitcoin? I mean, it, 
what was it what was it the uh was it the sound money aspect was it the just the fact that it's a digital currency um was it you know just the tech it was definitely the sound money aspect i'm a austrian school of economics sort of guy and you know my faith in keynesian economics was thoroughly uh shaken during the 2008 financial crisis when i was in school studying finance and undergrad and i realized that none of my professors nor the smartest people in the world had no fucking idea what they were doing. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I started to read on my own around how the Fed worked and how the financial system worked, which you don't really get that much of that in textbooks. And really was kind of taken aback about what I saw, how the system was constructed. Um, and so when, when Bitcoin came around, you know, the two factors I think that were most alluring to me was the 21 million hard cap. The fact that it is a disinflationary currency eventually becoming a deflationary one was a very, very, um, you know, exotic monetary policy that I found particularly interesting. And number two was the fact that it could be used for transactions that are typically censored. So Silk Road is a good example. Whether or not I agree with people, you, you know, whether or not I would do that myself is completely you know, that's a completely separate conversation. It's more of, I, I believe in, I'm a very big libertarian, so I believe that anyone should be able to do what they'd like to do. And the fact that Bitcoin could enable that and the fact that no one could stop it, I, did, I didn't know how Bitcoin worked then, but I knew that it must be big. If, if the government couldn't stop a Bitcoin transaction from happening, I knew that whatever is powering that underneath must be something really, really huge. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I, I definitely agree. And um, I mean, on on my end, it was um, what got me into it was because I I needed to find a different way to do a financial transaction, and um, none of the current avenues were were useful. So that that's how I ended up tumbling down. And and at first, I didn't even see it as a store of value. I just saw it as a medium of exchange, not really seeing the whole picture of Bitcoin. So, anyways. Um, Okay, so you tumbled down this rabbit hole and you're, you know, you're into Bitcoin and following it along with, uh, you know, the Austrian School of Economics. And you write this masterpiece, this four article masterpiece that, I mean, planting Bitcoin, uh, like, like I was saying, it's like, it, you know, the, the way that you explain, you know, the soil and, you know, the comparison, you know, between actually creating the environment and it's just anyways it's absolutely incredible and i I just want to um hold on a second i just want to start off with there was one i I wrote down a whole bunch of quotes that, that that you wrote but i'd like to start it off with this okay um it had to survive droughts storms and predators its deep roots had to support the weight of becoming a new world reserve currency memory or record keeping it is the collective memory of who has the ability to allocate wealth Money, which is the representation of the work required to acquire goods and services, can also be viewed as stored energy. So, I, I mean, to me that that's just it's just genius. So, if you don't mind, how did how did this all come along? <laughs> yeah, well, with all of my articles that I write, I want to write them for permanence. I want someone to be able to read this in 10, 20, 30 years, and maybe after my death and find and find value from it. Um, and with my Bitcoin origin story, 
had, wasn't really well understood. Um, you know, all of the decisions that were made around then, when it was planted, uh, you know, so sort of the, the TLDR being Satoshi's brilliance wasn't just in the species of tree that he chose to plant. It was also the season, the soil and the gardening techniques that were equally as important to the to the growth and success of Bitcoin. Uh, it was it was his go to market strategy that was really, I would say, a large portion portion of the brilliance. Um, you know, the, the species, you know, the genetic code that he endowed Bitcoin with, um, a lot of that tech was pretty old. Uh, you know, he was a genius in how he put it together and how he aligned incentives. But really, this wasn't like a, a breakthrough and, you know, like he didn't have to create a, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, atom collider to come up with this, with this currency. He just had to put all the pieces together and then he had to market, market that, you know, new, uh, organism that he had built, you know, he had to market that and, and, and really help it grow in a way that would ensure its survival. You, you know what? It's, you just got me thinking that, you know, it's interesting, right? Because a lot of really great inventions aren't really necessarily like if you take a look at like something like Thomas Edison, right? You know, all he really did was put together two known, you know, two known scientific facts and then was able to actually go and, you know, create electricity. So yeah, that's right. it's like, you know, all he did was suck the air out of the space. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, Satoshi with all he did was, you know, I, I wasn't even thinking of it till you just mentioned it now. It's like, you're, you're right. I mean, this was, this was all existing technology, growing existing technology. And he was just, he was creative enough to, to put it together. Right. He was definitely a polymath. Uh, it's, it's self-evident through the construction of Bitcoin's genetic code, how he spliced genetic code from other previous attempts at cryptocurrency, how he took different solutions and put them together, um, his understanding of how Bitcoin's monetary policy should work, for example, like how, how to control inflation and using the difficulty adjustment, how do you ensure that there's no free lunch? Um, all of that took, you know, I, he spanned it across like cryptography, software development, um, physics, you know, Bitcoin's proof of work is largely physics based. It's really the code is the least interesting part of how he constructed that the code enabled him to do it. But to use thermodynamics to protect Bitcoin was incredible, because it means that there is no code breakthrough after that. It, it's very, very primitive and simple, but elegant. Um, and then his understanding of the history of money and and I think also as well of uh, mythology, and that's what we talk about a little bit, or that's what I talk about a little bit in season uh, part two, which is the 2008 financial crisis. You know, uh, Satoshi planted the seed of Bitcoin at the peak moment of despair, and he planted it at a very, very interesting date. And I, I'm, I'm going to extrapolate a bit, so this is not this is not official sort of <laughs> commonly accepted uh, knowledge in this space, but I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here a little bit. So Satoshi, you know, definitely didn't choose the decade, the decade in which Bitcoin was planted was probably random and, or more random, right? Uh, the year was less random. The month was less random and the day was very, very much not random. Uh, 
I, I refuse to believe that Satoshi carefully chose to stay pseudonymous, build all of these parameters in, look at all the incentives align, aligned, build it, write the white paper, and just randomly press send. I, I refuse to believe that. I, I think that that's a disservice to like the amount of attention he spent on everything else. Uh, by the way, I use the he pronoun because he self-identified as a male on his peer-to-peer -peer foundation profile. Um, you know, the October 31st, 2008 is when he planted the seed of Bitcoin, which was the peak moment of despair in the financial crisis. You had the heads of investment banks calling their wives and going to cash out everything you can get. Uh, it's in, in this moment where he registers Bitcoin.org in August, carefully waits, carefully waits. And then October, at the peak moment of despair, I think he's like, okay, it's time time to press send sometime here and then. October 31st, though, why, why that date? Uh, there's no special date that there's no special thing that happens on that day other than Halloween. And I, Halloween, if you, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just totally agreeing. I, I'm sorry, continue. Totally agreeing. <laughs> yeah. Now, if we go back to the origins of Halloween, it's a Celtic festival that's Samhain. And the Samhain festival was around, um, it was around the, the death and birth of cycles. So like the, the end of the harvest season, the end of the growth and the beginning of death. And, and you know, it's part of the cycle of life, is life and death. And I think it was poetic that he launched on that day because I believe that he thought that Bitcoin was the chance at a new financial system and that this was representative of the death of the old financial system and the birth of a new one. It, it, you know what? I mean, we probably won't know, but I, I totally... I, I mean, I totally agree. It's like there's, you know, and of course people people will argue, but I I don't I don't believe in randomness, and I also don't believe in coincidences. I believe that we perceive things as randomness and coincidences, but I I don't believe that there is any. So, I given that he references Nick Zabo and the origins of money, I think he he references Nick Zabo. I'm not sure if he references references the origins of money, but he must have read it. And also understanding that a mythological sort of founding makes it a more compelling narrative that if the founder is pseudonymous, anyone can project their hopes, wishes, and dreams as to what that founder looks like upon that individual. And so, you know, I, I think we do see hints that Satoshi belie believes in storytelling and, and the white paper is that as well. The white paper is a paper trying to convince the cypherpunks who have been waiting for their, you know, holy grail for cryptocurrency for, for decades, you know, and, and so he's got to capture their attention. And so I think, you know, he's a great marketer and a great uh, leader in terms of inspiring people and trying to come up with a good narrative. And I, I think it would be crazy to think that like he didn't launch Bitcoin on October 31st, not being cognizant of, of the importance of that, that specific date. You, um, you bring up a good point about the narrative and, and how important that is. And, and I've obviously listened to your interviews on, on other podcasts. Uh, I believe you've been with uh, Peter McCormick and uh, Tales from the Crypt with Marty Bent. And um, I, I mean, I, I never really realized how important 
the narratives really were. I mean, I guess I never really thought of them uh, until I actually listened to you discuss it. And the and then once I I heard you discuss it, it I I think you're you're dead on with saying that the perfect narrative, like that perfect narrative, is coming. Like there, there was, there was something that you said about perfect narratives, and oh, it, yeah. it totally rung with me. You know that, like that uh, is what's going to capture the hearts and minds. Yeah, the the, the uh, narrative compression. You know, That's like it. back in back in the day, we just had Reddit and Bitcoin talk forums. Then we migrated to Twitter and other channels for conversation. And each time I've been through these waves since 2013, you know, that's when I, my first, the first wave I experienced was early 2013. Each wave that we go through, you know, there, there brings in new adherence and a lot of those new adherents can, can tell Bitcoin's story better. And I think, you know, back in the day to believe in it, you really had to dig, dig deep and kind of go hunt and truly believe. And now I think we've seen the narrative become more and more compressed. You know, I think some really great examples of that would be, Alex Gladstein, you know, his article in Time Magazine, Alex is with the Human Rights Foundation, his Time Magazine article that Bitcoin is about freedom. And I think that's exactly what it's about, right? It's about people being free and being able to control their sovereignty by controlling their wealth. And, you know, in addition to him, I, I think there's others, you know, you've got great podcasters out here, you've got great writers, you've got great people taking like Arjun, um, or not Arjun, um, I, for, I forget his name, but he wrote the uh, the bullish case for Bitcoin, and it was fantastic. It was uh, you know a great way to compress why does Bitcoin matter down to you know uh, a, a thirty minute read, <laughs> which is still very oh, long. Yeah. But but you know we're getting closer and closer to where I think the narrative will get so compressed, and it'll be so easily digestible that we're going to see like a, maybe a very decent chunk of a, a decent segment of the population go aha. I get it now. Whereas before it, you know, we had to largely follow progress. Um, but I think we're going to reach a point where the narrative gets good enough to where people start to really, it starts to really click. I, I agree. And I, I might be mistaken, but I think it's, it's VJ Boyapati that wrote that. That's right. That's, That's right. It. Yeah, I okay. Can't, can't believe I forgot his name. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, cool. No, I was like, I'm, I'm trying to remember because I remember reading that too. And of course, being extremely inspired. And I, I, I definitely, I, I can't stress the importance enough. I, I think, you know, um, the, the narrative, to your point, the narrative compression, I mean, to me, the article you, you know, the, the four articles that you wrote, those four parts of planting Bitcoin, that in itself is to me extreme narrative compression because when you you first come into this space there's there's so much going on like there's there's so much noise you know what i mean and very little signal totally, <laughs> totally. yeah well it's it's no i'm no surprise given the, the why you know kind of fluctuation of all these narratives ebbing and flowing it uh, i've seen it since 2014 you know you had all the app coins back then like Prime coin, which was doing something, you know, quote, quote, useful uh, <laughs> proof of work mining, which is finding prime numbers, like, like protecting a distributed ledger that is about an open financial system wasn't important enough. Um, you know, <laughs> I even mind, I mined some prime coin, I gotta admit, I, I thought it was interesting. You know, I didn't buy any, I just mined some, I was like, okay, I'll go. Uh, let's see, I, I don't work at this company anymore. But I, <laughs> I use the company computers to mine. Um, and I, I, mind a, I mind a whole block by myself. So that was kind of fun. Um, That's pretty cool. 
Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> you know, that why not? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we saw that narrative of like, oh, we could do all these things like protein folding or or useful proof of work coins or proof of stake proof of work coins. You know, that that narrative wave kind of ebbed and flowed in 2014, and then we saw that happen in 2017. And uh, you know, at the end of that. And when the price goes down, we see kind of what's real. We see what what is what is what is reality. What is what actually makes sense? What do people really believe in? And I, I think we're I think we're getting closer to that point. I I definitely do because as we go through these waves, we we seem to cycle out the the uselessness. And I think that this kind of goes back to you know to to planting Bitcoin where now everything is becoming more mature and it's it's becoming it's becoming the space that we want it to grow into very slowly but it's happening well i mean you know it, bitcoin has a as a tree you know like it, it survived a lot of its early youth where it could have gotten crushed trampled devoured um i think a lot of that risk is there's still a lot more risk in the future but I, there's still a lot of risk in the future but i think a majority of the risk we've We've gotten past. Um, I agree. You know, I, I I think there were so many things that could have gone wrong in the beginning, and and to sort of like see it survive this long <laughs> through, I mean, through civil wars, through narrative wars, you know, the flipping events uh, to see it to see it survive itself, attacking itself, you know, the, with the B cash wars. <laughs> That's impressive. It's impressive. Oh, it really is. It it, it absolutely is. Um, there was a, I wrote down some some notes from uh, from part four, and I, I I wrote that dev worship is dangerous thing for an open source project aiming for decentralization. Um, I I just don't um, I guess I just don't recall. Is do you do you think that that's do you think that that's an issue in Bitcoin? Well, fortunately, Satoshi left the project. So <laughs> I, I think that, you know, whether or not that was intentional, because, you know, some people speculate that he left due to the increased scrutiny with WikiLeaks accepting Bitcoin as payment. We'll, we'll never know. Um, but yeah, he left. And so that way there wasn't this benevolent dictator that always existed. And, and the fact that Bitcoin, you know, each one of these moments Bitcoin survives, like a civil war or founding, or for the terms of a of a decentralized protocol and you know other protocols like ethereum they haven't even gone through one of these and so they're they're gonna have to go through this and we'll see if they survive Uh, but i think like these other protocols have monumental governance and social leaps to go forward with but i think they're really underestimating how hard those are whereas bitcoin survived you know sort of like that that big uh the, the you know the Fermi paradox uh, essentially goes you know hey what's the probability of us finding other alien life in space and we if you run a calculation you're like oh well life should be somewhat prevalent uh, it depends on the the variables you plug into the model but there's always there's a hypothesis that there are some sort of there's a great filter event the filter event being one where a majority of species across the universe die because of X Y Z reason. It could be because of asteroids hitting the planet. It could be because of uh, nuclear warfare. And so, you know, that great that uh, great filter 
you know, I think Bitcoin has probably gotten past that. But I think all these other cryptocurrencies are going to have to get past a great filter moment of like their founder leaving, civil war happening, like big forks. Um, they're going to have to figure out how to survive that. That's a very good point. I uh, I didn't uh, I, I didn't think of it like that, but I, I, it's interesting you mentioned the great filter because I, I've seen it mentioned by a few people uh, on Twitter, and I, I just I. I guess I didn't understand it till you just explained it right now. And and yes, definitely looking back, I, I strongly agree that, you know, the I the the worst, you know, the most difficult parts of growing up have we've gotten past them. And those other coins definitely have to live through that. And I guess the the follow up question is, you know, do you I mean, do you think any of them really have the, you know, the capability to do it? I I personally, I, I, I don't think so, but I'm just throwing a blanket on it. Uh, it's extremely unlikely is the way that I'd phrase it. Um, yeah. It's certainly possible, but, you know, for example, like Litecoin, which I think has a pretty good, had a pretty good launch to where it was a fair launch. Um, it's a popular coin, uh, not a ton of governance issues, but you still have Charlie there. I really, I really like Charlie, by the way. He's a, he's a good guy. Um, <laughs> But you still have Charlie there. And so, you know, what happens when he leaves? You know, how does governance work then? Um, That's a you know, point. I, I think the benevolent dictator developer role in crypto is attractive in the beginning to get consensus around what needs to be built. But developers typically aren't good at social coordination between, especially in a decentralized function. And um, was it Linus Torval, the uh, Linux? you know, a uh, benevolent dictator that a lot of people despised. Yep. And, and inevitably, humans, look, we're just humans, right? Developers are developers. And they're just a human like anyone else. And they're going to have biases and they're going to have flaws and they're going to have blind spots. And so, you know, and they're, and they're also going to be egotistical when it comes to their capabilities. And when it comes, you know, we saw that happen with Jeff Garzik and uh, Gavin oh, Andreessen, yeah. you know, where they and uh, where they really overestimated their capabilities. And then we saw that, like, oh, actually, they're, they were good at hacking stuff together in the beginning, but not so good later on. That's a very good point. So um, I, I'm going to uh, I'm going to obviously add a link to your article, Planting Bitcoin, which I strongly suggest, especially if you know any listeners out there have not read it yet. Definitely check it out. Um, it, it should I, I think it should be mandatory reading for anybody getting into Bitcoin. <laughs> to be honest, um, so. appreciate it. Uh, no, hey, look, you're the, it came out of your mind. You know what I mean? Like, it's like you created that and it's absolutely beautiful. And I, I love the fact that you have a soundtrack. And I, I, anyways, it's it's super cool. But um, maybe, we, maybe we should talk about the soundtracks a little bit. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that in another podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that, that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, with, the, with the soundtracks, I kind of, you know, it's funny. I, I'm a big fan of uh, ambient techno or it's kind of like soundtrack music. Yes. It's really more analogous to that. And I fell in love with that around 20 years ago. And <laughs> I started, you know, torrenting those songs way back then. Then iTunes came out and I moved those to iTunes. And then I eventually moved those songs to Spotify. Um, and I preserved, that's my oldest, longest running playlist that I've preserved is that type of music. And with these articles, I didn't really... I did it for myself. I wasn't really too concerned if other people didn't like it, but it turned out a lot of, a lot of other people liked it. I think music adds a nice touch to an article. 
And the way I go about choosing these is I spend, typically uh, I have a good idea as to what sort of feeling the article is going for. Like for example, season, I'm particularly proud of because it's very ominous music. You know, I'm trying to get the tone set for the 2008 financial crisis. I loved it. I, I, oh, you cut out there. Hey, Dan, you there? Right. I replay the song so many times. I, I don't necessarily like hearing it again because I, I replay it so many times while I'm reading through it to see, you know, hey, does it, if I, you know, read through five minutes, is it going to end in a good spot? Um, you know, does it match the full tone of the article? And so, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a labor of love. It's a fun, it's a fun thing that I like to do. And it's very distinctive to the best of my knowledge. I don't know of anyone else on medium who actually writes their own or actually, who actually scores their articles with music. Nope. You, I was going to say you were <laughs> definitely unique and and it's awesome. It it really, really is. And for somebody who, you know, like I am the kind of person who pretty much always has a soundtrack going in my head for anything I'm doing. So it, it totally, nice. you know what I mean? It totally rung true with me, you know, totally. like it, it was so cool. I was like, you know, I couldn't believe it. I was like, he's chosen music for this. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it totally awesome. <laughs> um, totally. Okay, so uh, like I said, I'm gonna post links to uh, to to that article, uh, to your Medium article on the uh, the show notes. But um, just moving on from there, I, um, I I recall one of your talks. That I I just want to one of the things that kills me about the people, you know, I, I guess you call them no coiners. You know, the the narrative of BTC is boiling the oceans and using all the electricity. And I, and, and I totally remember, I remember reading something from you where you were like, I, I need to dispel this now. Like I need yeah. this to, to stop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these articles that I'm writing are, you know, part, I wanted these to be, I felt like these narratives were like really big parts of Bitcoin's culture. And I wanted to write about them to where they would be permanently valuable to everyone. And two, a lot of times these address FUD or fear, uncertainty and doubt, or essentially you know, uh, that, that, that sort of, you know, that the feelings thrown by no coiners and other people that believe in other cryptocurrencies, they throw that at Bitcoin to undermine its authority and undermine its narrative. So I felt like I had to defend some components. Uh, one of those being Bitcoin's proof of work. <clears throat> and I think the simple way to describe this is that in the real world, we would never ever make fun of someone for building walls or defense mechanisms or vaults around things that they care about. It's common sense. Of course we would do that. Of course we would build defensive mechanisms. So when it comes to Bitcoin, how do we build those same type of walls that we would in the physical world? How do we build one of those around a digital ledger? And we have to build a wall of energy. So that's what Bitcoin does with Bitcoin's proof of work is it takes electricity and it runs it through a processor called a ASIC, called an ASIC. And that ASIC essentially makes a bunch of guesses and then whoever has the winning guess gets the payout. And what the ASICs really represent is it represents proof of work. It represents that energy was spent in order to cast those lottery tickets in order to win Bitcoin's reward for that 10 minute block. The, you know, what that really means for the layman here is that Bitcoin takes energy from the real world and uses that to build walls in the digital one, uh, which is incredibly important because the only way 
to do a 51% attack with Bitcoin or to really effectively attack the network is to, you'd have to expend the exact same amount of energy that it took to build the wall to take it down. And so it's a transparent cost that everyone can see. Uh, but if we look at Bitcoin versus every other, like if we look at Bitcoin versus gold or the existing financial system, it uses magnitudes less electricity and it delivers much higher value. And finally, I mean, who among us is so arrogant as to say that we deserve to be the electricity police? Like, how, I, how, how dare you go, hey, excuse me, ma'am, are you watching the Kardashians on your TV? Uh, that's a huge waste of energy. Fuck you. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No one does that. No one's looking at your burger and they're like, oh, my God, how much electricity does that use? No one. No one does that. <laughs> no one. Uh, it, it would be absurd. And so... People do that with Bitcoin because the energy usage is a transparent and b a lot of the detractors, a lot of the people that bring up that Bitcoin is quote unquote boiling in the oceans, they they also don't believe Bitcoin has any value, which is wrong, because there are individuals who believe it has value, and that's the only reason why anything in this world has value. The two parties agree it does have value. So to pretend that Bitcoin doesn't have value just because you don't believe it does is completely disingenuous. As a researcher. Or as anyone who would be sort of like trying to make a rational argument that Bitcoin is wasteful. I I totally agree. I, I mean, it's it, it in every single instance I've gone back to look at the history of the people who make these comments, and and you can just see, you know, like it's uh, obviously they they don't believe in it. And to your point, if two people believe that something has value, it does. That that's all you yeah, need yeah. is a minimum of a counterparty or a, a second party, I should say. When you look at their tweets and you see what they're talking about, you can quite often see that, you know, th these people, they they have no interest in it. And and obviously, they, they don't believe in it. And to go back to your, you know, to your previous point of about having two people believe in something, that, that's the whole reason anything is worth something. And I completely agree with that. And it's funny because there's a, there's a lot of people that they, you know, they don't realize that that's what they're actually living through. You know what I mean? Like people don't actually realize that money is worth something because we all believe it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, are you kidding me? Do you really not see it? Well, that's, that's <laughs> the thing about narratives, right? Is that narratives sort of create the fabric of the world around us. We are, we believe in a government and gods and money and other social constructs purely because everything everyone else does too. Um, in fact, the federal, the St. Louis Federal Reserve says that like Bitcoin, like like the U.S. dollar, has no intrinsic value. Um, it is purely a shared belief between multiple people. I think it's I think true. a good example here is that art. I think this one makes it really really hammers this point home as art. Yes. You know? I think a lot of people look at that as kind of like, oh my god, I can't believe someone paid ten million dollars for that. And it's like, well, it's because everyone else does. Everyone else believes in it and everyone else thinks it's good art. And that's why people want to buy it. Um, and there's only one of it. So that's what makes it, you know, that's another parameter of it. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, I think most people don't spend the time and the mental effort to really question the nature of the reality. If you did, I think most people wouldn't be able to sleep at night if they started to think about their government and money. It's a very heavy topic for most laymen to consider. You know what? And to your point, right? Because it's so it's if you ask me, it's been made to be scary, right? We've turned it into this beast. 
and you know through you know through deleveraging and inflation and all kinds of shenanigans you know like at this point it is you you can't go to sleep at night when you actually know the truth but uh, you know at, at the same time you know like it, it's that awakening that needs to happen in order to create this better world that we all desire but nobody works for you know it's like everybody wants something better but then we all get up and just go do the same thing every day Sure. Yeah, and, so. and I mean, look, I mean, most people, most people don't have the mental models to like go and evaluate new ideas very effectively. So with something such, you know, with the existing financial system, like they just have to trust it because it works 99% of the time. And then when it doesn't work, they get outraged because they never spent the time to figure out how it all worked. You know what? You kind of just made me think. Um, I remember seeing a guy standing in front of a uh, bank. I'm originally from Montreal, and we have TD Bank, you know, just like here in the U.S. And um, there was a guy standing in front of the bank, and he was holding up a sign, and it said, I am not financially viable. And it, it just, it, it kind of rings, you know, it, it, it goes back to that that narrative, and it goes back to, you know, people believing and you know, people wanting something different, like, you know, take a look at that, you know, this guy standing in front of a bank holding up a sign when really, I mean, it's the bank, you know, it, it has no bearing, it has no bearing on you, you can go out and do whatever you want. And I, I don't know, I, I just, to me, it's like a sickness of the times, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, I think Bitcoin, more than anything else, represents a vote for freedom, a vote for yourself in a world of uncertainty and a world of anxiety that, you know, what, what am I going to do with my job? What am I going to do with my, uh, you know, will, will environmental, it will be, will, will I, do I want to have kids in like the current, you know, environmental sort of issues that some people are saying are, can be really big in the future. You know, people have all this anxiety and I think like the medium is a magnaphone for that because it, it's a views and impressions, right? And we see every single school shooting and we see everything else, you know, Bitcoin, uh, separate from that, Bitcoin is your vote for freedom, a vote for control, a control over your own destiny that no one else can, can influence. Only you holding that private key can control your destiny. And by doing that, you can have some measure of uh, independence and feel sovereign again to where you, you are somewhat insulated from all these concerns and anxiety in the world because you have the one thing that you can hold that only you believe in. And you can do that very peacefully without influencing or uh, well everything in the world kind of influences everyone else but you can do that without you know ex uh, you know first order effect negatively influencing someone else and you can do that in a non-violent way and i think that's the first time in human history that you know you can really be part of a revolution without having to ever fire a gun or without ever having to hurt someone that's right the uh, the reduction of friction right you know bitcoin makes things have less friction well interactions have less friction it increases social scalability because if we don't have to trust each other uh or we we reduce the amount of trust needed for transactions and it increases the ability for us to do more transactions exactly so okay um we're going to uh we're going to move on from that uh, there was something else uh, we wanted to take a look at here was um, Bitcoin security models. 
tell me <laughs> tell me a little bit about that. I'm sorry. I, I don't I don't really know very much about it. I mean, obviously, I kind of think that you know maybe the hash rate has something to play into it, the nodes. But please, yeah. So you know this you know with proof of work and and with the block reward. Uh, so Bitcoin security models essentially paying the Bitcoin miners that expend the money to go buy machines and buy, purchase electricity to create Bitcoins. Um, what Bitcoin offers them is a, a unique uh, game theory sort of uh, outcome, which is that miners can either take the money or they can collude together if they wanted to and, and hurt the network by double spending. And But by the way, that would only affect the, the, the newest Bitcoin transactions. This is the worst case scenario. Uh, in the worst case scenario, they would be able to double spend recent transactions, but by doing so, they would be willing to burn the money. So essentially all the money they put into their ASICs, all the money they put into their electricity, they'd be willing to burn it because by doing that double spend, the price of Bitcoin would likely likely plummet. Oh yeah. And, and to mine a Bitcoin costs a lot of electricity, you know, a lot of ASICs in terms of capital, CapEx. So, you know, what Bitcoin offers is a very interesting like, game theoretic environment where it's like, look, you can either take the money or burn the money, but there's no alternative. You can't reuse Bitcoin processors and you can't reuse that electricity. You've already spent it. So um, people hypothesize that you know, that rate needs to be a certain level to thwart off attacks from like big state actors, which we haven't seen yet. But I think we might see one in the future. Um, but, the, you know, a lot of this negativity is coming from basically Vitalik Buterin uh, with, with Ethereum. He's a very brilliant um, marketer where he's thrown memes at Bitcoin that have been very hard to defeat and have largely undermined the community. Um, several of those would be Bitcoin's proof of work is boiling the ocean. He has largely propagated that narrative. Um, one was also Bitcoin maximalism. You know, I don't think anyone should apologize for being a rational individual. Uh, and most maximalists or quote what he calls maximalist I've met are simply people that find Bitcoin interesting and have high standards for quality. And I don't think anyone should ever be ashamed of that. Uh, only in the crypto space was that marketing so brilliantly executed that somehow intelligent people like in Silicon Valley think that that's rational. Uh, essentially, Vitalik, through calling Bitcoiners Bitcoin maximalists, has largely marginalized them as Luddites or conservative, but in reality, they're just really, really critical, really, really rational. And they don't accept uh, other protocols that are willing to uh, undermine the entire reason of why they, they exist to begin with. Um, and then finally, his, his latest FUD is around uh, Bitcoin's uh, security model. So the TLDR is that as Bitcoin's block subsidy, so in each Bitcoin block, miners receive both a block subsidy yeah. which is the issuance of Bitcoins and then transaction fees that people attach to their transaction to get their transaction processed. Over time, the block subsidy or the amount of Bitcoins printed in each block or newly minted to zero in, a, in the year 2140. And so yeah. every four years, approximately, the number of newly minted Bitcoins per block drops in half. And so his supposed... The issue, which isn't, isn't an issue, is that when the block reward gets too low, that transaction fee revenue won't be large enough to compensate miners to protect the network. And so I've been spending some time researching that and found it to be largely unfounded. 
but it takes a lot of time to go through this to go read about it and go figure out what's going on. Uh, and uh, this is a meme that's popularizing the Ethereum community where they go, oh, Bitcoin hasn't figured out its security model. Um, essentially, what Vitalik has done is he's opened up Bitcoin's 21 million hard cap to a political debate, which is exactly why Satoshi had the 21 million hard cap is that no one would have that debate. So it's a brilliant marketing move by hand, brilliant, brilliant attack. Uh, it's because now Bitcoiners are even talking about increasing the 21 million, 21 million limit on Bitcoins. Uh, or taking old coins that have supposedly been dormant and then, and then reusing those in the future, which I disagree with that as well. But if you do some basic back of the envelope math, which uh, I've got an article coming out, which does this, and it took me 30 minutes in Excel to come up with this, you see that the block reward, so the block reward, the uh, or I think the most appropriate metric is, there's a couple ways to slice this. Uh, one is like, what is the appropriate level of security for Bitcoin? That's very subjective. I think it's probably in the future in Bitcoin's like final state in terms of, you know, 40 years from now, I think it'll be equivalent to like a few hundred billion, which would be larger than almost any state, any state other than the United States defense budget. I find it extremely unlikely that a public who owns probably owns a lot of Bitcoin at that point and all the wealthy people, and all, all the military people that own Bitcoin at that point would be willing to go burn $300 billion or something. Yeah, I find that really impossible. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, especially when like the citizens are like, wait, you just took our money and you burnt it. And we all have Bitcoins too. So I, I find that, I think that that's like an appropriate, that, that would be my complete guesstimate as to an appropriate security level, which will hit, likely hit, you know, 50 to 50 to 100 billion uh, annual spend and security budget by the, at the you know, if the next boom run boom run hits like 100k per bitcoin we're going to hit a security budget that's pretty close to that um so the way to evaluate this would be to look at the rate of transaction fees as a percentage of the block reward um over time and i think even more granularly the percentage of the block subsidy in usd what does the transaction fee revenue represent as a percentage of the percentage of the block reward subsidy and we see very clear trends that transaction fees are growing through each market cycle to represent more of the block reward and even more clearly more of the block reward subsidy. So that to me is extremely encouraging, and especially since we have 10 years of data that we can look back and look at this. And then uh, finally, it's entirely intuitive. Well, <laughs> if Bitcoin adoption continues to grow, there will be an increase in transaction fees. And and each time Bitcoin's price has gone up, it brings a wave of new believers, it brings a wave of new people into the space, which brings a wave of transaction fees and, in, and permanently increases the baseline for base level transactions. And so I think like, and then in 2017, we saw a clear indication that people are willing to bid for block space to get into that block. You know, when transaction fees got high, which I argued they're not really that high. I and mean, think about the, about the price elasticity of a consumer who just spent four percent on Coinbase to buy a thousand <laughs> to buy a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, they just spent forty bucks. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, so like their price elasticity to like move coins on chain is likely very high. Y you know, if we look at other you know high value transfers, let's look at let's look at uh, Chinese investors in U.S. real estate. How much is how much are closing costs on a U.S. property? <laughs> that's a million dollars. That's right. Like, 
<laughs> of course, they're going to be willing to pay twenty bucks for. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course, and 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 by the way, any transaction fee is a terrible user experience because consumers don't pay transaction fees when they pay. Yes, they pay it through because the merchant passes the cost on through, but they don't explicitly pay it. So, like claiming that a high fee is a terrible user experience, I think ignores a why blockchains are really used and AKA they're not used for payments typically, like merchant payments, and B. And there's a lot of other reasons why consumers wouldn't want to use it for merchant payments. And B, uh, if we look at their at their price elasticity of what they pay to A, get into the crypto space, uh, B, what they're willing to spend on other payment methods or like moving their assets somewhere else, um, then it seems totally plausible that they'd be willing to pay, you know, $20 for a transaction. Now, there's really cool things that Bitcoin has with Lightning to where Bitcoin Lightning payments, so on layer two, which is which is Bitcoin, uh, can be really, really, really tiny amount of fees. Uh, so, you know, Bitcoin doesn't lose with, with layer two, which is, I think, an intelligent scaling solution. Bitcoin largely retains, actually, actually not retains, it expands its functionality to include the tiniest of micropayments for the kind of like forever existence of the Bitcoin blockchain, while also preserving that layer one security and, and protection. I think that's incredible, and I totally can't wait for the article about the uh, the Bitcoin security model and to your point about Lightning Network. Um, so first of all, I'm obviously a huge fan of Lightning. I've got a couple of nodes running, and, you know, I mean, I, I find it to be extremely fascinating, and it's allowed people like me who don't write code to get into the space and to provide value for others. So value for ourselves, because we want to be a part of the ecosystem and we want to be an active player, but value for the, the entire network. Um, but the other piece I wanted to say was I put out a tweet because it's interesting that you mentioned about the, um, you know, the lowering subsidy and, and everything like that and the block reward, because right away, as I'm looking at the, the lightning network and I look at how many nodes we're putting online and all of these numbers going up naturally, if this is going up, we have more transactions naturally, right. <laughs> you know, naturally there'll be more transaction fees. And when those people close channels and that Bitcoin gets registered on the blockchain, they, you know, there's somebody getting a block reward for that. Uh, sorry, yeah. they're, they're getting a transaction fee for that. Yeah, I mean, it's so completely it's like, disingenuous where this other side is coming from. And if you look at it, it's largely like Vitalik and a few others throwing these spears. Um, but yeah, it's like essentially they're going, there won't be demand. So they, they put Bitcoiners in an impossible situation and then say, aha, in both. One, they go, oh, fees are too high in layer one. And I'm like, that's bullshit because people are willing to pay a lot of money just to get into crypto. They do degenerate trading back and forth with their, all their coins. They, they couldn't give two shits less to send it on chain for whether it's a dollar or $10. Not to mention like volatility with these altcoins. Like if you have a 10% volatility and you have $10, that could be a dollar fee. Uh, yeah. Uh, so not really, you know, the, the fee is the least costly part of it. The fee is in the spread on the exchange combined with the volatility combined with the transaction fee. That's the true cost. They put Bitcoiners between a rock and a hard place where they're like, transaction fees are too onerous and expensive and painful. And I'm like, that's false. And they're like, well, there won't be enough fees. And I'm like, that's also false. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they put Bitcoiners in a spot where you can't win. And so this, this piece largely, my article that I'm writing largely defends both sides, I think in a way that, that makes a lot of sense. And that's pretty basic. I, I like to write all my content to be understandable by, by someone who's you, know, you don't have to really understand Bitcoin that well. It should explain it all in an A to Z format. 
it, and and I gotta say that it definitely it definitely comes across as like a nice friendly you know like people don't really know how to introduce tone in their writing and and I think that you do a remarkable really remarkable job of it where a person like reading through your stuff like you feel like you're being uh, you're being coached through it you know where it's like mm-hmm. look you know I'm taking you through these steps and this is how it's making sense and and really I mean I I I, I definitely appreciate you. Put, you know, taking the time to do this research to get this material out there, you know, for people to have more signal and less noise. You know, I appreciate so, you saying that, and I think that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to explain it as simply as possible in a good flow that makes sense. And I think some of my experience at Uber played into that. To where when I was at Uber, I last crypto winter I spent it at Uber, where I was on writer growth and uh, the global data team. And when you reported or emailed upwards in terms of the organizational chart, or if you had multiple stakeholders in an email, you had to write a TLDR, a too long didn't read. So you had to compress your narrative and and compress it really well. And then, you know, I, I worked with some of the executive leadership team and some of the top senior product members. When you go ask for something or when you defend a position or defend X, Y, or Z or, or cover something, you need to cover it from all perspectives. And so the way that it was phrased internally is like, if one of the executives finds a thread to pull on, they're going to pull on it and unravel your argument. So you have to defend it from all angles. Otherwise it can be unraveled. And so that's what I try to do with all of my content is I want to make sure that it's been defended from all angles. And when I do that, it usually means that I have the complete picture and that I can walk someone through from the most basic steps all the way through to the argument I'm trying to make. That's it. I, I think it's brilliant. Thank you so much. I, I think it's awesome. Any final thoughts or anything that you want to leave with the listeners? Uh, let's see. You know, I, I think, you know, it, this is largely Bitcoiners, right? Oh, yeah. It's all Bitcoiners. <laughs> <laughs> all Bitcoiners. It's all Bitcoiners. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, it's an incredible spot that we're in to be in Bitcoin right now with the people that are writing about Bitcoin. You know, I didn't think I was a writer when I first started to write about this and it turned out a lot of people like what I wrote. That's why I'm on here. You know, <laughs> I would encourage anyone to really go and, and tap into that content creation skill. You know, we all have a role to play here in talking about Bitcoin for the next generation. And maybe you take my content and build something on top of that, or you take a piece of it that you like or something else and maybe you come up with another metaphor you know i think like brandon quit quitting there's a really good article on how bitcoin is more of a fungus that's and right so that was, you know he reached out to me when he was writing it and i was like oh this is amazing and that turned out to be a really big hit too so you know we're all building narratives on top of each other and i would encourage everyone to you know try it out try out different narratives with their friends and family i know it's hard to convince someone to get into bitcoin and you know, put it frankly, you know, your, your parents may not ever get into it, but, you know, try it, try it and see what happens. Try it and see if maybe you come up with something that other people like it, it uh, might help you talk a little bit more about Bitcoin and it might help make, may, may make you feel good that you're contributing to the overall narrative in the space. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I'm still trying to convince my parents to get into Bitcoin. So <laughs> I've been trying for seven years. So <laughs> I've got a ways to go. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, crossing my fingers. It's okay. We're gonna get there. Like you said, the narrative compression. Once we get that perfect narrative, no one can stop us. You know. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, it might be a combination of the right narrative, right time. 
you know, we'll see what happens with like another financial crisis. Yeah, exactly. Which I'm pretty sure is not too far off. Um, totally. So if, uh, if people want to reach you on, uh, well, what's the best way to reach you? But we'll start with that. Yeah. If you're curious about my product, it's Dan at picks, P I C K S dot co. If you're interested in my content, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dan held. My name on there is Dan Heddle, but my Twitter handle is Dan Held. Or go to my blog, uh, danheld.com, where you can read all of my content and uh, shoot me an email if you'd like to chat about something. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Dan. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Have a good one. Cheers. Bye. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dan Held. Um, I'm going to post in the in the show notes, there's going to be a link to... Um, planting Bitcoin, his Medium article. There's also going to be um, his uh, Twitter handle. And as well, I'm also going to put his email address, uh, his contact information. And of course, as always, there's my contact information. If anybody wants to reach out to me, it's at CoinIcarus, and that's on Twitter and Telegram. If you want to reach out to me by email, it's fun with crypto at protonmail.com. Catch you all next time.